The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is day four of our winter seven day session, 2nd of July 2019. And we're going to take up our text, uh, Bodhidharma's Outline of Practice from the book, The Path to Bodhidharma, The Teachings of Shoto Harada Roshi. And we come to the second of um, the four ways of entering um, the way through practice. And the second one is called um, Accepting Circumstances. This one too is, is about uh, our being obedient to karma. Here's what Bodhidharma says. Living beings, having no fixed self, are entirely shaped by the impact of circumstances. Both suffering and pleasure are produced by circumstances. If you experience such positive rewards as wealth and fame, this results from past causes. You receive the benefits now, but as soon as these circumstances are played out, it will be over. Why should you celebrate? Success and failure depend upon circumstances, while the mind does not gain or lose. Not, by mo not being moved, even by the winds of good fortune, is ineffable accord with the way. Thus it is called the practice of accepting one's circumstances. Haridarishi comments, No matter what happens, what is most important is to accept it all and respond accordingly, moving correctly in our daily lives. To accept the circumstances of our lives, our good fortune and our bad fortune, to accept the circumstances of our minds, this is a particularly big one in Sishin. In other words, um, not getting caught up in how we would like our minds to be, but, but just accepting our thoughts and our feelings just as they are. We, we can't um, respond until we've done that minimum of, of acceptance. Think of that um, little formula from Master Sheng that we mentioned before. Face it, accept it, deal with it, let it go. Many of us want to just skip to let it go. Those of us with, with more of an aversive personality um, we want to go straight to getting letting go because really it's not so much letting go that we want to do but getting rid of we 
one spiritual teacher says, I don't let go of my thoughts, they let go of me. And what she means here is if, that we, if we really see through our states of mind and see how they create our suffering, then they won't have anywhere to hold on to. There's an, there's an image that sort of conveys this in the story of the Buddha's Great Awakening. There's a point where um, Mara's armies come. Mara is like a personification of, of ego or evil, even delusion. And um, as the Buddha is sitting in his, his, um, under the bow tree, at a certain point, Mara's armies come to try and and pull him out of his meditation, distract him, and they they the the these hordes with weapons and 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 frightening um, assail Mara. We would say we would say now they're kind of um, very very powerful makyo. But it is said in the story that, that the Buddhas were sat like a great smooth rock and, and Mara's hordes were like crows trying to peck this, this great smooth piece of granite. No place to, no handle, no hooks. So accepting our thoughts and feelings, uh, but not believing them. They're, they're, they're the phenomena of the moment. How could we argue with that? We must become as accepting as a newborn baby. None of us thought to be born into this world at this time to these parents. We received from the source totally and innocently the circumstances into which we were born with no expectations, no knowledge and no preconceptions about what this life would be like when we entered it. We accepted our situation of birth. We never thought about how we would not want to be born into this difficult to live in house into this period of history. It can be hard sometimes for, for us to accept the karma of our time or of our country. Throughout a, a large part of human history there's, there's been these, these myths of a, of a golden age that, that express this longing to be to be born into a different kind of world. After the term of pregnancy, we are simply born and we arrive with a big cry and total acceptance. Our mothers, fathers and ancestors' habits are given to us without our expectation. Therefore, to say this is good and this is bad is to add something on afterward. 
It is not something that is a part of our pure mind at birth. And of course, coming with, with um, our mothers and fathers and ancestors' habits is their limitations, their passions, their delusions. There's a saying I, I recorded, I don't know where this comes from, um, if you realize that behind every parent is another parent, you have to forgive. You'd say there's this long genealogies of delusion. C.G. Jung th thought that to not repeat our parents' mistakes was a, was a great achievement. To accept our inheritance of, of delusion, you could say, and then do our best to become conscious of it fully and that's wisdom wisdom starts in delusion its substance is delusion you could even say were we not pure when we were first born no one comes out of the womb complaining about having to be born that is what Bodhidharma is saying in his in this part he is teaching that we are fundamentally without any egoistic self whatsoever. The baby accepts the world with which it is presented without judgment, exactly as the world is presented. Adults are always judging and complaining. Which is the easier way to live? You do well to ask ourselves that question. Why would we... we um, stay in our judging and complaining if there's an easier way to live, a less burdened way. If there's a, there's a kind of innocence that we can rediscover. I mentioned in a couple of taste shows ago about this um, woman, uh, Byron Katie, who who had a spontaneous awakening, and um, it's a very very powerful process she went through. She um, wanted to read read you about, a little bit about, um, and she 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 literally forgot, in a sense, forgot who she was, and it was like she had. Um, died such a thorough death to her her small self that after this experience she was she was like a newborn baby So just just a little bit, um, a little bit about this um, 
In the midst of an ordinary American life, two marriages, three children, a successful career, Katie entered a 10-year-long downward spiral into depression, agoraphobia, self-loathing, and suicidal despair. She drank to excess. Her husband brought her pints of ice cream and codeine pills that she ate like candy, and she ended up weighing over 200 pounds. She slept with a 357 Magnum revolver under her bed. Every day she prayed not to wake up the next morning, and it was only because of her concern for her children that she didn't kill herself. For the final two years of this ordeal, she could seldom manage to leave her house. She stayed in her bedroom for days at a time, unable even to shower or brush her teeth. What's the use, she thought. It all adds up to nothing anyway. Finally, in February of 1986, at the age of 43, she checked herself into a halfway house for women with eating disorders, the only facility that her insurance company would pay for. The residents were so frightened of her that they put her in the attic bedroom and booby-trapped the staircase at night. They, short, they thought she might come down and do something terrible to them. One morning, after about a week at the halfway house, Katie had a life-changing experience. As she lay on the floor, she didn't feel worthy enough to sleep in a bed, a cockroach crawled across her ankle and down her foot. She opened her eyes and all her depression and fear, all the thoughts that had been tormenting her were gone. While I was lying on the floor, she says, I understood that when I was asleep, prior to cockroach or foot, prior to any thoughts, prior to any world, there was, there is, nothing. She felt intoxicated with joy. The joy persisted for hours, then days, then months, then years. But immediately after this experience, she, um, anybody um, from the outside looking at her would have probably thought she was she had gone mad. So she had had no preparation for this experience. Um, she hadn't longed for it, hadn't practiced towards it, didn't even know what it was. She had no categories for what had happened, nor did anyone else around her. All she knew that was, was that her life had been changed utterly. A paranoid, agoraphobic, suicidal woman had instantly become joyful and serene and had been given a method who, that could keep her rooted in the state without ever returning to the world of delusion. Though it says here instantaneously, we can be sure that there was some kind of process going on in the, in the, in the depths of her darkness, that she was in some way um, searching. But this method referred to, we, we haven't got time to get, a, get into that, but it's a method of inquiry that she developed out of her, her own experience. But here's the point about, uh, being, about becoming like a, a baby. She had no recollection of her former life, and she stepped into her family's story with a fearlessness one can only be in awe of. Her husband and children suddenly appeared at the halfway house out of nowhere. 
This large stranger is my husband. These three young people whom I've never seen before are my parents, are my children. Okay. Then she, she the slide, slate had been wiped clean. There was no teacher or tradition to help her or give her a reference for what had happened. She had to figure everything out for herself. She didn't know what our social norms were. So when she saw a stranger on the street and went up to him and stared into his eyes, um, intoxicated with, lo with love, or w walked into someone's house because she knew that everything belonged to her, she had no idea that people would see her as crazy. So she, she became a kind of um, holy fool. Then there was a gradual process of adjustment. She learned how to modulate her ardour. She learned how to say I and you, table and chair, even though she knew that the words were lies. This is actually the teaching of the Diamond Sutra. Over and over again it says, it says um, that the things that we, we label in this world are not, don't exist and it's, uh, they have merely been labelled as such. Her 16-year-old her daughter was um, kind of came in as, uh, took on the role of, of tutor to, to reacquaint her with, with life. So when she, she relates how when she put on a red sock and a blue sock, her daughter would say, no, mum, you don't do that. You have to have your socks matching. Or when she would go out onto the street in her pajamas, her daughter would, would gently pull her back and, and say, no, mum, you don't go outside in your pajamas. She also relates how, generally speaking, when she was in this, this, this state of, of uh, innocence, that people recognized it and treated her kindly. They, they responded to this, this infant-like um, cl clarity and cleanness. Uh, but over time she was able to to relearn the, the kind of the norms of of our conventional world without losing this this um, this more profound truth of of uh, oneness and 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 being totally wide open. she continues when our minds are free from egoistic views we can accept things exactly as they are they are we can see everything with our eyes because our eyes are empty they no longer take double exposures as one thing leaves then the next thing appears my teacher, Mumon Roshi, used to tell a funny story about someone looking in the mirror one morning and noticing that she had a wrinkled face and white hair all of a sudden. Upon investigation, she found that her grandmother had just used the mirror and her image was still reflected there. Of course, mirrors do not act like that, nor do our eyes. Only our egoistic consciousness does this, and this is unfortunate. 
and our whole pile of woe comes with this this way in which our, our egoistic consciousness projects our assumptions about things onto the world and then takes that what we see um, at face value. We should, we should always, as much as we can, remind ourselves that what we, what we um, see and hear are appearances to the mind. There's no other way of experiencing things. We have the teaching of Banke on the unborn Buddha nature. He would say that when people come to see him, when people came to see him, they came expecting to hear him speak. But if a dog were to bark at the same time, they would hear that dog bark as well, without having had any expectation of hearing the barking of a dog right then. Even though the mind is empty, void of any intention of hearing a dog barking, there is, there is no idea about it there at all, you still hear the dog when it barks. This empty mind that hears the dog barking is the unborn Buddha nature. This mind that works with no expectation or preparation or plan. Our true mind is empty of ego, like a baby's mind. Another example that Banke gave was if you're walking through a busy marketplace and there were many, many people and ones and twos and in groups traveling through this um, space, how wonderful it is that more or less nobody bangs into each other. Our, our unborn Buddha mind just directs us so that we don't bump into people. To realize this mind, we use the use um, breath practice or the mu koan of Master Joshu. A monk asked Master Joshu, does even a dog have the Buddha nature? Master Joshu answered, mu. But if we are saying mu all the time, does it mean we are empty and pure? If I call a person in Sanzen a fool, that person becomes angry immediately. Um, Sanzen is the, is the, um, the Rinzai equivalent of Doksan. So if I call somebody a fool, they become angry. Where does that anger come from if the person is so empty? To do Zazen until the Mu flows and circulates throughout the body and mind, that is all that can be done. In our minds we know what Mu should be, but to realize it, to become it, is not so easy. We must do it not just in the Zendo, but eating, standing and working. If we can keep that moo going always, then no matter what comes along, we have only moo to meet it with.
Although we are pure from the origin, we still have physical bodies. We still have to eat and sleep. But our physical bodies are merely, bo merely borrowed utensils for the purpose of realizing our Buddha nature. In truth, there is nothing but mind, which is completely clear. Not even a name can be placed there. That which sees the red flower or the green willow and hears the dog barking is the same for each of us who sees and hears it. If we say it down, sounds different in different languages, that is already putting onto it the dualism of language and separating ourselves out from it. Every person is born with this mind from the origin, which is Mu. Anyone can realize this. Anyone. It's our birthright. It's the ground we stand on. But we, we so often we get caught up in language. Language which is based on dualisms, opposites, up and down, has and has not, enlightened and unenlightened. All of this misses the point, obscures the truth. All the practices, move the breath, um, what is this, shikantaza, are offered to us as ways of, of coming home. Returning to uh, what we most fundamentally are, returning to what cannot be taken away not be perturbed in any way. Anyone can realize this. But it does take an attitude of whatever it takes. However much time it takes. However much struggle, however many times we, we fall down and have to pick ourselves up. We are all different in our physical characteristics, possessions, intelligence and personality. Why are we all so different? All children spend a long time wondering about this one. Uh, not, only, not only children. Um, some years ago I saw a clip of, of, of some monkeys um, who, were, who had a sense of, of what was fair and what wasn't fair. They were fed pieces of cucumber and um, you 
eagerly ate those bits of cucumber until one of the monkeys was given a grape. And then the monkeys that weren't given the grape rejected pieces of cucumber. So they may be, maybe they're not philosophically wondering about why we're all different, but they have certainly have a sense of, of difference and sameness. Bodhidharma teaches that of course we're different. Our parents are all different, our parents' personalities are different, and their parents' personalities as well. Our, our, we each have um, slightly different genetic makeup. And then of course the way those genes um, express themselves is dependent on so many different factors. We are not little rolls or croissants being made exactly alike at the bakery each day. <laughs> we have our father's personality and also the karma of being born from him. We have our mother's personality and also the karma of being born from her. And of course brought up by these two as well, or not. Why does the person next to me come from such a rich family? No matter how much I worry about it, it will not make any difference. All of our differences come from karmic connections reaching back long before our own birth. Our circumstances are, are the result of so many different things coming together. But often we get caught, caught up in, in taking our circumstances personally when, when there are many, many factors that lead to who and what we are right now. Originally, our source is without stain, empty of egoistic self. But why then, we wonder, do we suffer so? There are even some who suffer all the time. They live in the midst of constant suffering, unable to do anything about it while other people are living in happiness and comfort. Everything comes from karmic connections and everything will eventually change when the karmic effects that brought it about wear off. It presents this, this extreme of people in, in, a, in deep suffering. But there's lots, of, there's lots in between no suffering and, and, and constant suffering. Some of us are afflicted even though our um, material circumstances are quite comfortable. And some people seem to be um, full of joy and, and, and freedom even though they have very difficult circumstances. another little little story from Harada Roshi. Near Uwajima in Imamatsu there is a family of long-standing ten or more generations named Konishi. This was a family of sake makers 
and among the ten richest families in all of Japan. One day the father of the first generation went into town and on his return he rested along the way with a big barrel of sake next to him. A samurai came walking toward him, sweating and tired. The sake maker's barrel was full of sake and the samurai could smell it. He asked for a drink because he was so thirsty. First the sake maker took out a little plate. Using some leaves he gathered nearby, he sprinkled sake in the four directions. Then he gave two other offerings as well. The samurai asked him what he was doing. The sake maker said he had just opened a new sake barrel and was thanking all the gods in the four directions and the daimyo as well with his offerings. The samurai understood thanking the dog, the gods, but why, he asked, was the sake maker thanking the daimyo? The sake maker answered, because the daimyo keeps the country in peace so the sake can be made. We always thank him before taking the first drink out of a bottle, out of, a, out of the sake barrel. The samurai, who was of high rank, rank at Uwajima Castle, returned to the daimyo and told him what had happened. The daimyo made the sake maker into the royal sake maker, who provided all the sake to the castle. And he became very famous and his sake very popular. For many generations his family continued to hold this position until the time came in history when the current sake maker had to give up his home, his lands and all of his possessions to the country. So it, this little tale is like a fairy tale. And then, but, the, but then it has not just, and they lived happily ever after, but, and then everything came apart. He had to give up his home, his lands and all of his possessions to the country. And it doesn't explain this. Maybe it would be well known to people in Japan, this family and what happened to them. But perhaps they lost everything in the Second World War, or who knows. But the point is being made here that um, this, this, this very good fortune went on for ten, went on for ten generations. It seemed, it'd be seemed to that family like it would go on forever. But at a certain point, it all fell apart. He continues, when the karmic connection is finished, everything changes. All circumstances are only borrowed. Good things, bad things, suffering, joy, all come out of past karma. So there is nothing to be so proud or so happy about. If you see the present reality clearly, you will, be not tossed, you will not be tossed and turned about by current conditions knowing that they're only transient and will change. None of it defines us. It's, it's, they're like the current weather. There are, sometimes the weather's fine, sometimes it's stormy. It's easy to see this in times of suffering. In the tough times especially, we can believe that those conditions will change. But when the winds of good fortune and wealth begin to blow, 
how weak we become. We so easily become proud and feel rewarded and comfortable in our circumstances. And of course this, this happens on, um, on the level of nations as well. Uh, whole successful rich nations um, so often become very arrogant and uh, feel that they are in some intrinsic way superior. This happens with, with uh, races too. Some of you may have read a book by Jared Diamond it's called Guns, Germs and Steel. And in that book he sets out um, why certain countries um, dominate and why they're so successful. And it's nothing to do with the intrinsic qualities of the people in the, those countries, but to do with um, uh, various material conditions. We so easily become proud and feel rewarded and comfortable in our circumstances. This can happen when our practice is going well. We, we reach some, some place of, of, of quiet and stillness and, and we, we get all excited that we're, we're deeply enlightened or going to be deeply enlightened. And then conditions change and we're desperately disappointed. Generally the 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 the, the pride that comes from from um, feeling like things are going really well is more um, difficult to handle than the the discouragement. In the discouragement, we we're motivated to to, to see beyond it because it's an uncomfortable place to be. But with 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 the pride and the and the sense of um, superiority, that can be much harder to work with. So we can be we can be thankful when we're struggling. Knowing that there is only one kind of karma, no matter what comes along, we must realize the truth and follow the path. Whether our karma is good or bad, we must not drown in it. Whether our karma is good or bad, we must not drown in it. It's not telling us anything about who or what we are. It's karma. It's just the result of causes and conditions. It's not an indicator of our goodness or of our lack. Whether our karma is good or bad, we must not drown in it. 
we should become obedient to our karma, accepting all circumstances, as Bodhidharma writes in this section. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. This is how it is written in the Bible. Hard to enter into the kingdom of God if we're proud. If we feel superior. Because we won't be open. We won't be able to receive that, that kingdom. There was once a very, very rich family named Tajima. There was a strict rule in this family, however, that when each year's rice harvest came in, only what the family needed was to be kept. All the rest was to be given away. The rule was never to build storehouses or warehouses, but to give rice to all the temples and shrines and to the poor people. When the end of the Tokugawa era came, the daimyo ran out of money and asked everybody to give something from the wealth in their stores. The Tajima family had no money at all. They had given all of their rice and profits away. This was known by everyone. It was known that they could not give money. The government too was aware of this and did not ask them for anything. Other great houses went broke, but the Tajima family had known from the beginning that it was all borrowed profit. Um, similar thing in, in China, when, um, when the, in various times um, over the centuries, the, the, the monasteries were um, persecuted um, the, the Chan monasteries tend to, tended to come through these persecutions better than some of the other traditions because they didn't collect ornate art and um, treasures and so they weren't considered such attractive targets for, for pillage. In Zen there is the teaching of the half scoopful of water. In the monastery each morning, three small bamboo scoops full of water are allowed to wash the face and to rinse the mouth out. And the last half of the third scoop is always returned to the water source. This would be here if you're um, washing your face at a, at a stone basin where you can, can return the water to the basin. We continue this practice of not wasting water today, even though we have now running water in the monasteries. At Sogenji there is the story of the master whose bath water was far too hot. He told the disciple who was in charge of the bath that day to bring some cold water. At that time, of course, there was no faucet to make the water start running. The disciple had to go all the way out to the well, pull up a bucket full of water, take the water into the bath, and then go back to the well to bring up another bucket full of water, and go back to the bath with it. Many times he went back and forth from the well, bringing cold water. 
When the bath was finally cooled to just the right temperature, the master said, okay, that's good enough. When he said that's good enough, the monk took the little bit of water that was left in the bucket and dumped it out on the floor. He put the bucket upside down, thinking his work was finished, prepared to leave. His teacher was furious and said, what are you doing? The monk was amazed and did not understand why, when he had just finished his job, his teacher was suddenly angry at him. The master said, you thought there was only a little bit of water left in that bucket, so you dumped it out so carelessly. Why, just because it was a little bit of water, did you not perceive how to give that little bit of water life? If you had taken it outside, you could have put it on a flower, you could have given it to a tree, you could have used it for the vegetables in the garden. The master knew and was telling the monk that in one drop of water, even in the slightest drop of water, there is an entire universe of energy and functioning. We must make our efforts so that we are using what comes to us totally. If there is a lot of water, we can use it in a big way. But with even the smallest drop of water, we should put our efforts totally into taking the life of that one drop seriously and using it in the best possible way. That is what doing our practice is all about. So this care is not, it's not just about um, being frugal or, or not wasting our resources, but honoring the life of each and everything we encounter, honoring, honoring that thing's ancestry on this um, planet. And this sort of thing is not, is not just found in, in uh, Zen, in Buddhism. Um, growing up, we were, we were, um, we never threw, it was never, um, bread was never put in the rubbish tin. It was, it was um, given to the birds. If there was stale bread, it was given to, to birds. It was, it was something still, some, some trace of, of uh, a sense of bread as, as sacred. Give us this day our daily bread. And in in, in it's not just obviously precious things like like water or bread, but uh, things that we might might consider insignificant. A dish rag, rather than leaving it in a in a pile in the in the bottom of the sink where it'll go slimy, we rinse it and hang it so that it can dry out and be ready for the next time it needs to be used. This is giving life to the dish rag or honoring that dish rag's life. And also uh, people to, to bring out the best in people, to bring out their best, truest life, to honor what they have to offer. 
This is this is a wonderful practice, and it's really at the at the essence of what sangha is. To be a community that enables the best in people to find its place and and blossom. Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org dot org dot nz